James. Duncan. How are you doing? I'm well today, thanks. How are you? I'm well too. Okay, welcome to Cloud Streaks, which is a uh, podcast where James and I talk about a topic each episode. Today's one is what is emotional health? Um, I actually wrote a blog about this. So if you go to cloudstreaks.com, you'll see the blog on this and I'll put it in the, the link. And it's also sort of related to a school of life video. I'm a big fan of the school of life. Um, and one of the things which um, Alain de Baton said was, sad people know what they are sad about, depressed people don't. And I was like, oh my God, that is gold. <laughs> and this is kind of what sparked this. Yeah, so I thought um, we should first clarify uh, it was Alain de Botton, was it not? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so this is a really, really interesting area where we actually, like, so what we're going to try and do here is, like, talk reasonably about something that I think you would often think goes beyond the realm of reason, and that is how we feel and what our emotions actually are. Hmm. Um, so... I thought this was sort of funny. Um, I love talking about emotions, feelings, but if you'd spoken to 25-year-old Duncan, I would have been like, this is ridiculous. Uh, I don't want to talk about these things. And so sometimes I think it's funny that 20-year-old Duncan, if he met 35-year-old Duncan, I think he'd be impressed. But other times I think he'd be like, what has become of you? <laughs> How could you be doing this to us? And I think that today is one of those ones where you'd be like, nah, um, it'd be like, Look, I would have literally looked at the title of the podcast, Emotional Health, as a 20-year-old and been like, no, I don't need to hear that crap. This is all some you know, highfalutin ridiculousness. So, so just one quick funny anecdote. I actually have a very vivid memory of when I was probably about 10 years old, not too much older, uh, and I asked, uh, and, and Dad had just put on a record, and it was probably Bach or Beethoven or some classical music, and I point blank asked him, and I said, Dad, do you remember the time in which you died inside and started liking classical music. <laughs> oh, man. Let's go. And I was, I'm, I'm sure there was a bit of cheek in there, but I was straight up honestly curious. It was like, what happened when you're like, you know, how did this, how did this happen? And, the, and yeah. sure enough, like, after listening to Elena, the princess of Avalor, on repeat, for about the last six months, like whenever um, any kind of what is that for for the under the shed? Because I have no idea what that, that is. Um, it's kind of like the new Peppa Pig of the younger generation. So it's basically my and for people who don't know what Peppa Pig is, okay, my four year old soundtrack. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, it's a Disney princess uh, musical. Uh, so have, listening to that on repeat, like, and when I turn on classical music, I suddenly feel very relaxed. And then I, mm -hmm. and I think back to that moment of like, this is it. This is that moment. <laughs> mm. So James, you and I have known until this is about five. Do you reckon that we spoke about emotions in the first 15 years of our relationship? I highly doubt it. Other than the, the incredible uh, elated feeling of, you know, success or conquest over the other. Um, but in terms of exploring emotions, uh, not in the slightest. Yeah. So I think... They say that, I don't know, there's lots of socio-cultural indoctrination. And mm. uh, at mm. least I think for, for the standard story for boys is don't talk about your emotions. <laughs> and they say that even like mothers, I think by the age of like two years old, they spend, and I'm going to get this stat wrong, something like a third less time actually holding the boys than they do um, the girls. Mm. So they just, they, you know, cuddle them or, or, you know, carry them around. And also that they talk with the girls far more about emotions than they do with the boys. 
So from a very, very young age, like as soon as you can start to talk, society is saying one thing to girls and one thing to boys. Now, I'm sure it, there's obviously differences in different families, but on average, that's what the stats are sort of said. Yeah, so um, this harkens into um, uh, what we what we tend to phrase tos- toxic masculinity, um, which is, as you said, Duncan, some, by way of some cultural norms or appropriation, what we seem to have convinced ourselves that as men, we are not... Uh, I guess, you know, interested in or associate ourselves as to having feelings. It's like, you know, man up, suck it up. All of those kinds of uh, phrases and terminology that should suggest that feelings would be otherwise considered a form of weakness. I don't know if that's the technical definition of how I would describe t- toxic, toxic masculinity. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that might be like bro, you know, bro downs and sort of other things. Mm. I think for better or worse, men are just less... Uh, you know, even in some by their mothers, an example, talk to about their emotions. And so I think everything's developed, um, whether it's logic um, or whether it's creativity or whether it's your ability to play a video game or whether it's your ability to play a sport um, or your ability to emote. Um, and early on, uh, you know, you, you aren't necessarily encouraged traditionally as a male as much as you are as a female. That's not the side of toxic masculinity. I think that the toxic masculinity side is, you know, boys club, bro down sort of thing to me. Well, so, yeah, so um, so uh, I think it was uh, Lewis Hose, um, Howes, who wrote the book The Master of Masculinity. <laughs> Hose. Um, yeah, I'll just, just go past that one. So um, <laughs> so he wrote, um, he wrote The Master of Masculinity and he talks um, at length in that about um, toxic masculinity and how that relates to the point that you raised, Duncan, about like bros and boys will be boys, um, associations to, you know, dominance, aggressiveness, all of that. Um, But there was, um, I I think, a number of uh, semblances where he referred to how we don't tap into our emotional side because that is seen as a weakness um, or like counter to being what's considered as masculine. Mm. Okay, so I thought the first question was like, is emotional health feeling only good emotions and not bad emotions? So happy, you know, versus sad or frustrated, or is it feeling the full spectrum of emotions? Now, if you'd asked me this five years ago, you know, the goal of life was to be happy. Um, And, uh, you know, for me, uh, happiness is a second order outcome. It's not the primary thing you go after. If you have a good relationship, it makes you happy. If you enjoy your work, it makes you happy. Um, but it's not like I want to be happy and somehow if you give me a lot of money or, or you know, fame, I'd be happy. Although 15-year-old Duncan would have said happiness equals fame and money. <laughs> so hopefully I've matured a little bit since then. But the other thing is that now I really like feeling the full spectrum of emotions. So as an example, if you lose a friend, if you're not feeling sad, I'd argue if they were really a friend. And so for me, it helps me understand what's important. Um, and I don't want to deny it. Um, I, I don't want to become depressed. But, but I don't want to sort of be like, well, if you've lost something important to you, if, you, if it doesn't feel bad, I don't think you've really allowed it to feel good. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, this is a really good distinction, and I think it's important for um, you know, us to explore this uh, in more detail. But I really um, you know, I, I appreciate bringing to light about whether healthy emotion is something that's just always positive or if it's actually something that is um, you know, the full spectrum, as you put it. So, so my take on what you would consider to be healthy emotions um, is 
not so much that you feel sad when you should feel sad or whatever. It's just that you're in tune with your emotions. And what I mean by that is that, so I, um, you know, save for, let's say, the outliers or um, the, you know, the pathologies of being a, social, a sociopath or a psychopath. I would um, say that when you do suffer loss, you do feel sad. It's about whether you allow that feeling to take over, you know, um, you as a person, or if you try to repress that feeling, if you try to ignore it, or um, you know, say that that that's a negative thing that I don't want to actually feel, regardless of the fact that that's how your body responds to the the, um, the, the sense of loss. I've forgotten where I read this, but like they were saying, like emotions are signals. Um, so it's a it's a learning about something, and so. I don't think I was very good at listening to what my emotions were saying. In fact, I, I think I tried to actively not listen to them. <laughs> um, so um, you can cultivate your sort of internal ability to, you know, have self-awareness. But I think maybe this is, you know, the golden mean Aristotle. Like if something, you know, I don't know, you lose a friend um, and you could not, you could try to deny it or you could try to sort of feel it and learn from it and then learn what to treasure and what's important, or you could let it like overrun you. So there's probably too little and too much. And too much might mean that instead of learning what's right and treasuring and then, you know, spending you know time with other friends and knowing, you know, how important and special it is, you might get stuck in that sort of place of where everything's bad. Mm. And so for me, um, you know, there's a sort of maybe an appropriate amount, not too little, not too much. But I, I think back, I was really trying to suppress, uh, not, you know, any negative emotion was bad and I wasn't trying to feel it at all. So I was trying to push it away. And then I wasn't really trying to lean into feeling the good emotions. I was just kind of passive. So I was like passive and not necessarily experiencing, like popping the champagne. So on the good, something good happens. I'd be like, next, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't stop and like smell the roses. Mm. Um, so I think I underappreciated good emotions and I suppressed bad emotions. Mm. So I basically say I was not like 10 years ago, Duncan was not very good at emotions. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So um, it, it would probably come to a surprise to most people, including myself, but like Charles Darwin wrote a lot on, um, on, on emotion in terms of his observations on, um, you know, on people as well as other species uh, in like in general. Um, and so he and uh, an American psychologist, William James would argue a lot about, emotions and how um, we express them in order for us to be able to build connections with human species. So what he would say is that emotions are the language or the grammar of um, social living. So the way they viewed having um, an emotional cue is really what designed to allow us to foster that connection between people. So just think for an example, like, you know, happiness when, uh, or happy emotion, um, that's could be construed as why we like to share happy moments with people. Um, and the same thing with loss. Well, when I lose that friend or I lose that family member or I lose um, you know, anything in that regards, that sense of loss stems from that loss of that connection. So I thought it was really interesting how, like, you know, just re reading up very briefly that, uh, you know, even the founder of evolution thought really deeply about how the, um, our emotions evolved over time as well. Yeah, um, I think so. There's a thing called emotional contagion. It's a wonderful TED talk. I'll try to put it in the notes. Mm. Uh, but basically, emotions are contagious, and they've done a whole lot of like research pieces on this. And for better or worse, negative emotions, according to these people, are five times more contagious than positive emotions. And this is kind of a legacy from negative emotions keep you alive. 
if the, if we have to like freak out because the tribe's getting attacked or there's a you know a saber tooth tiger you know coming at you, you jump. <laughs> um, and so this is really 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 interesting. I think um, you are always I think emitting some emotions whether you're conscious of it or not. And I really wasn't conscious of this say ten years ago. I was really trying to lean into becoming more conscious of it. Um, and I think that you can definitely process these things. And this is part of what other people do for you. So it's like, what emotions are you feeding yourself? What emotions are you feeding others? And what emotions are others feeding you? Mm. Yeah. So like um, going back to that idea about, you know, contagion and negative emotions being far more pervasive. um, That's a really good example of how um, we evolved in order to survive based on how we emotionally respond to events. Um, Because I think it was that, um, you know, I'll, so if you look at the brain, uh, let's get anthropological, uh, we have the prefrontal cortex, which is the home for all your reasons and your logic abilities. But emotions, are pr- for more or less um, uh, better understanding, are primarily stored in your limbic system, which is the, the central part of your brain. And that responds far more quickly. Like um, it has an incredibly, like you will react instinctively to an event from an emotional um standpoint far far more rapidly than you will be able to um, bring any cognitive awareness to it and so I think that would that um, that interplay Duncan about like you know there's a ruffle in the bushes the instinct goes straight into fight flight uh, fight or flight because you know in the in the off chance that it is a saber-toothed tiger then you need to be prepared for it otherwise you're going to get eaten and not be able to pass on your jinx so um sometimes I think a person is their logical input and then their emotional input, and they're often sort of intertwined. Mm. But I used to sort of think, I don't know, at a work perspective, all logic, logic, logic. But I've realized that some people have really, I don't know, bad energy, what to call it, bad emotions, and they're just stressful. And so sometimes, an example of this, like somebody who means well, like they really care, but their caring might be expressed as worry slash paranoia. And I think that you ultimately want to have a good understanding or reflection of reality as close as possible. And if stuff's bad, cool. Well, not cool, but it's okay <laughs> to you know worry and be paranoid, right? Mm. But if everything's all good and you're just worrying unnecessarily, that worry is contagious. Mm. And so sometimes I used to sort of say, well, this person's got good logic and they care. But then I realized that they were caring uh, you know, in a non-careful fashion mm. and causing unnecessary stress and paranoia around and I'm like I can't have you around and I remember trying to sort of talk about this to them and I don't know if I was able to explain it well at all but I, I don't think that they saw it as a negative to some extent they were like no no, no I'm ca- I'm looking after this and worrying I'm like yes to a fault yeah and then you're causing other people to not want to be around you so yeah everyone is a logic and emotional you know adding or subtracting yeah so um I definitely take to the initial point about, so what is the practical application here? So it's, um, so there is an emotional response here. So let's say it's worrying, but then how does that actually apply itself to be useful? So it's really, um, you know, it's always testament to whenever you're working in a team environment or even just simply in a cooperative environment, like how does that actually serve the greater, um, I guess, community? So if, for example, you have someone who is vigilant or productively paranoid, uh, thanks to good to Greg to uh, spell that one out, mm-hmm. then there is a utility to having that kind of feeling. But like to your, to your point, if someone is just overly worrying and that energy 
band out to the wider group um, as a drain on them, then actually then that can be quite corrosive and have, uh, I guess, you know, not damaging, but at least, um, you know, a, a negative effect on people. And it's kind of like what you've said in the past, Duncan. It's like you can have uh, interactions that are either beneficial or non-beneficial, but you can, those same beneficial interactions can be energizing or can be draining. Uh, and so I think that's a really good, um, you know, in, input there in terms of like, well, if you're worrying, are you energizing, are you using that feeling to energize or to drain those around you? I thought I'd give two examples of this. I think um, basically the better you are at logic, so let's say at work, i.e. adding value, um, the more you can get away with having bad emotional energy. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so an example, and now I have not met the person who, you know, Steve Jobs, I think probably best product manager of all time. But, you know, but a bit of a tyrant nightmare from time to time, yelling and upbraiding people, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, not everyone liked it, but even the people who didn't and left still said it was one of the highlights of their working career because they made some beautiful, epic things. So I think, you know, all else equal, you want to be hopefully adding value on a logic perspective, but you don't also have to be a dick. Like, you know, you, you can also sort of be nice about it. Um but something else also, I have some friends which I would say are zero on the sort of logic front, but really good on the emotional front. So sometimes it's like Friday evening and like my, my mind is fried <laughs> and I, I just want to catch up and I don't want to talk about anything dense. Like I'm super interested in what's going on in Hong Kong and China, all that jazz right now, right? I don't want to talk about that at that point where you catch up with them and you'll have a conversation that is no logic. It's like mind downtime. But they've got really good energy. They laugh and they smile. And you just catch yourself laughing. And you walked in and you're like, there's no energy. There's no laughs left in this tank. I'm like, out. And somehow they energize you. They fill you up. And so I remember sort of thinking, why would you ever want people in your life without the logic front? And I'm like, they're like a Panadol. They're like a relaxation thing. They're, they're, they're a therapy dog. It's beautiful. And so I don't know. I didn't used to think that there are people you want, which is like, nothing on the logic and really good on the emotions. Mm. So th there's a really interesting um, you know, thing for that we can explore there and that's when you're talking about with Steve Jobs being, um, you know, uh, for want of a better word, a maniacal asshole. Um, <laughs> but he still got a lot, you know, a lot of people would still reflect back on their time there as being, you know, the most um, monumental periods of their lives or they, they, they look back on it positively. Um, and this is where I think there is a semblance of, so there is, let's say, primary emotions. Uh, and what I mean by that is that things that you could almost say that from any individual standpoint, you could say is a universal uh, truth, or we can all agree that's what that emotion entails. But then there's what they consider to be more cultural aspects of emotions and th these are the kind of things that are learned based on the culture or how you are um you know the the norms in which you are conditioned to when you're raised um and so uh, there's, a, there's a fellow called dr um dacha keltner who talks about they do they did a study dasha uh whatever <laughs> <laughs> you've, read, you've got all these words so, so i hear i believe he's from um, Berkeley, and he's this. He does part of the sort of a professor in happiness. Is that who you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He's, it's pronounced Dasher. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Duncan. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is, James knows so many people and knows so many of their quotes, 
but I don't know if he pronounces a single one right. Like, you almost butchered Charles Darwin. I'm like, come on, mate. I, I, like, that's one of the easiest ones. I definitely think I'm, like, over the 50 percentile threshold. It's like, it, it is pretty abysmal. Like, honestly, how many people I mispronounce on a daily basis must be quite a staggering statistic in of its own right. Uh, anyway, so he talked about a study where they went all around the world and they mapped people's facial expressions against um, a number of core feelings. I think they listed about 20 of them. And he said for 75% of them, they were all quite universal. Like, you know, when you were happy, the the parts of your face would contort in the same way. But 25% were very much culturally based. And then, um, so for example, like when Japanese people laugh, they cover their mouths. When um, some parts of... um, uh, like India uh, expressed disbelief is actually seen as more of a positive confirmation in other cultures. So that's what I'm getting at is that there are these elements of how we use our feelings in our environment that can actually be construed as negative by some people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think what you're saying, like it's, it's sort of learned. Like when yeah. you're born, you can't really see properly apparently and then it's all haze you can just see light and dark uh, and then all of a sudden you can get into focus and you can't see color and you don't know how to use your body you'll see a toddler trying to walk and they're sort of you know all sort of you know not good at their balance and they slowly learn how to use these things so you all have the same experience set when you're born you've been inside a womb can't see anything you can't hear anything <laughs> you have not experienced anything right um and so I don't know, the fixed mindset is that you're born good at something or bad. A growth mindset is that you can develop something, you can get better at something. Mm. And I feel like different things, I know there's actually studies on this, come with specific amount of fixed mindset attached to it. So, for instance, maths has a far higher fixed mindset than, say, does drama or, say, does sport. Now, the actual studies show that you, you're, you, if you do more sport, you get better. You do more maths, you get better. But some of that, you've got a maths brain or you don't. This is just built into the stories. And I feel that the same thing sort of for the feeling side. Some people have a high EQ, emotional intelligence. Some people don't. And I don't know, it wasn't until like five years ago that I started to be like, hold up, I've bought this story that some people are high EQ and some people are low EQ. Um, why? Where did it come from? Mm. And I think that it's, it's much developed anywhere. And so there's a wonderful study, which I cannot recall the name of right now, which says, and this is a paraphrasing probably in a semi-incorrect, basically... The more words, emotional words you know, the more emotional feelings you have and the better your emotional health, all else equal. So you don't think in feelings and translate to words. You think in words. Words are solutions to problems. So basically, you can cultivate your emotional ability massively, just like you can cultivate your logic ability. Can you get better at maths? Yes. Can you get better at emotions? Yes. Yeah. So um, I think that's a, it's a really um, you know good point about using words as a tool to bring your awareness towards what it is that you're feeling. Um, because, you know, just like how the Eskimos have 80 words for ice, being able to distinguish between, you know, blissful joy, elation, and happiness gives you a far more nuanced appreciation for what it is that you're experiencing in any given moment. Totally. And so that's a really interesting one. Even things like seeing. So if you're an Eskimo and you've got, I think they have 100 words, James, or 50, I can't remember, <laughs> for ice. Um, um, not 80, obviously. You, yeah. <laughs> you, you look at it and you see all these things. Whereas I look at it and I see like white stuff, right? Um, and and, it, and if you like a sport, like let's just say you really love, um, I don't know, what's it, like soccer, um, which is sort of an international one. 
you look at it and you see lots of lots of stuff. Whereas I look at it and I see some people running around kicking a ball. So even like you might you might think, oh, I can build my mass ability. Oh, okay, maybe I can build my emotional ability. It's like, no, no, what you see with your eyes, you can see more. Mm. So if you have 50 words for ice, you look at a block of ice or whatever, and you see all this stuff, whereas I look at it and see ice, right? Yeah. Or if you look at a sports game, you go and see, you know, sports ball, and you can see heaps more than I can because you've cultivated yourself to see it. Mm. So even something as, I don't know, I would thought it was like, everyone sees the same. It's literally seeing. Yeah. No one can see anything different. It's seeing. And I'm like, no, no, wrong. You see what you're looking for. Yeah. No. Um, sorry. Yes. um but the next level of that is once you intellectually understand something it's very different to then when you experience it firsthand and you can actually start to bring much more awareness around those kind of things so back back to your point about emotional intelligence so this was something i would always try to um bring further meaning to in that i would always say I believe I have high emotional intelligence, but very low emotional fitness. And what I mean by that is that when we talk intellectually about emotional intelligence, I get it. I understand all of the concepts that you can explore. But when it actually comes to the real world and my awareness of myself, my own emotions and those of around me can be pretty poor from time to time. Um, and it's about that, um, that level of fitness or, uh, I guess, aptitude in being able to apply the knowledge or the logic that I have acquired in the real world, in the real moment, um, from an emotional standpoint. Yeah, I think you might know heaps of concepts, like lots and lots of whatever, maths, but if you can't use it ever, it's not so good. (laughs) Or if someone's doing a maths problem and you're like, no, no, slow down, I I can't see this. So maybe we'll talk about emotional vocab, emotional self perception, emotional self-regulation and perception of others so the bigger your emotional vocab i.e the understanding of different things the more you can recognize in yourself Mm. so they say that little um infants have three emotions happy sad and fear and then you slowly get more and more emotions right um but you sort of cultivate them um and so for me i think i've been trying to sort of improve all of those areas emotional vocab self-perception, self-regulation, and perception of others. Mm. And I think we can sort of go through different areas of this. But I think the first one is maybe some a couple of your favorite emotion emotions, like words. What have you got for me, James? Oh, okay. Let's see. So, yeah, so there's a few interesting ones out there. I've tried to go as, uh, as unusual as possible. I start off with an easy one. Are these words that you know, or you're just Googling some stuff right now? No, no. Is something you would drop into, like... Conversation. So no, this is something I've I've done before. So I I actually looked into it. But like the first one's an easy one, like deja vu, right? So I'm sure everyone can tell of the time when they've had that inexplicable feeling that what you're experiencing in the moment has actually happened before. Uh, and so it's mm. actually quite a unique one. But like um, uh, like I can't pinpoint the, the moment, but like having this unsettling feeling, but then being brought awareness to this actually being an expressed emotion that people understand and have have, um, have also felt outside of myself was really, really um, validating, so to speak. But um, I digress. The other one that I really liked was ellipsism. So this is when 
this is given the sense of sadness one experiences when they realize they're not going to get to see the future right so like you know let's say on on uh, on par those born in the 1980s will have something by way of an expected life uh, term of 110 years I think it is um, but when you think about the way human is, uh, the trajectory of the human race is heading, it's going to be a very exciting time to be alive in about one to 200 years beyond that. So if you ever feel that, uh, you know, that emotion coming over you when you're thinking about that as a, as a personal reality, the, the term is ellipsism. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll do one more that I think, um, and then we'll hear from you, Duncan. Is that, uh, what's the word I think was? Um, Oh yes, so ex old ans, ex Did you Google these, or did you know these? Oh, the ones I have are the ones I know. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Like um, But like these are the feelings I know, right? So this is what happened, right? So I want to try to understand what this. But this is when you get frustrated when you're talking about something important or an experience that matters. What's frustrating is your pronunciation of that. <laughs> <laughs> But other people are unable to understand, relate, or appreciate it. Right? So you know, mm, not, I like that. yeah. So it's like a really excellent. Yeah, a really big one is when you just like I don't know, um, you know, threw some paper over your right shoulder and it went in the bin, and you're just like, oh, that was awesome, and there's no one who there to see it, and so you're trying to explain that to someone, they're just like, oh, okay, cool. But if someone had seen it, they would have been like, oh, wow, that was so cool. <laughs> Is another word, you know, it's like sometimes I'm trying to articulate something to somebody, mm. but I can't get the words to make it work. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll get frustrated. And I'm like, ah, because I, I kind of, you know, but also the same thing, like <clears throat> when you can finally articulate it to someone else, you understand it yourself. Yeah. So it's it's both. This is this thing like, you might think that you understand your feelings. I'm like, well, if you could describe them differently, you can change your understanding of them. And I'm like, I think I understand this. And then you'll try to explain it. And then you'll realize that there's some like holes in what you've said. And you're like, oh. Yeah. And that doesn't make sense. And so I love articulating stuff. I love it. It's the most fun. Okay, a couple of words from me. Sanctimonious. Yeah, good one. Uh, making a show of being morally superior to other people. Mm. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, yes! Like, so-and-so walking around like, I know better than you. And look, look, listen here, you know, Johnny come lately. This is this is not good. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, holier than thou or sort of thing. So, Self-righteous. Um, yeah, um, but sanctimonious, uh, yeah, it's one. And then another one that I really like is sonder, which is the profound feeling of realizing that everyone, including strangers passing in the street, has a life as complex as one's own, which they are constantly living despite one's personal lack of awareness of it. Mm. And so I don't know about you, but I suppose most of the time I'm sort of in my head thinking about me. I do try to look at the world from other lenses. But life is, I think, actually fascinating and interesting. And you see people walking down the street and I don't know, most of the time I'm not sort of thinking about what they're thinking, but just this like, they've got a really interesting life too. Yeah. And it's just like this beautiful sort of like, ah, oh, everyone gets to have an interesting life, hopefully. <laughs> what about, um, so, uh, you mentioned it earlier today, Daniel, but there was a French term that I wasn't too sure of. Like, can you... Well, je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's je ne sais quoi. I mean, <laughs> it means that that's something that's indefinable. It's an elusive quality mm. that's pleasing. Someone has a je ne sais quoi. So there's something about them that's pleasing, but you can't really put your finger on it. Mm. It's a sort of elusive thing. And so it's um, almost like you might call it charm or something. You know, like there's something appealing about someone. They have a je ne sais quoi. Um, 
and it, it's nice, but then I normally try to then articulate what it is. Because <laughs> like, I'm like, this is going to bug me. I'm going to try to articulate Like this. charisma, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so we're sort of talking about this before. There's emotional vocab, self-awareness, self-regulation, and perception of others. Mm. <clears throat> One of the things, you can hack chess um, maturity by just going through past games. So basically, you can become a chess prodigy when you're 12, and you just go and look at the games that all the masters played and then understand, well, why did they make this decision at this point? And so you're effectively gaining the experience of others, not the hard way. And one of the things that I've found is an amazing way to do this is to listen to different you know, podcasts on this. So one would be for work, DHBR. And this is going through different people's problems at work. Oh, that coworker you don't like or you know, getting past a promotion or all these things. And you hear these people talking about it and it resonates. And then when you speak to somebody and it's got sort of similarity with that, you realize that you've got some ability to empathize with them, mm. like wild amounts more than you would have otherwise had. And another one is Esther Perel's, um, uh, what is it? Where are we? This is, he- I can't remember. It's, it's on relationship um, uh, uh, counseling. And it's whether like, I don't know, someone's cheated on someone or someone doesn't feel like they're loved the same way they were before or someone has attachment issues from their parents or whatever else it is. And then you you realize, oh my God, this circumstance in the past now makes so much more sense to me. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's good to learn from your own mistakes. It's better to learn from others. Mm. Um, and I used to spend all this time cultivating, I need to get better at understanding startup strategy and I need to get better at, you know, management and now I'm like, well, I need to get better at emotional vocabulary, emotional self-perception, emotional self-regulation, and perception of others. And they're all the same. And so you, all of them, you, you get better at one, you get better at all of them. Mm. And to me, I didn't used to spend active time trying to level up in that area. I'm like, idiot. Like, you know, this is so crucial. No, 100% agree with that. And it's really like the, the, the critical aspect of like understanding what it means to be in tune with your own emotions as well as being in tune with those around you, I think really harkens back to that ability to make connections. And that ability to make connections, um, I think it was, um, oh, who was it? Peter Singer, Peter Singer. He talks about, um, we have this thing called the circle of care. And the growth of human history is all about being able to expand that circle. So if you think about back in the, um, uh, the you know, the, before the tribal days when we were more nomadic, you really only cared about your very close immediate family and you know those who were roaming with you. But when you expanded to the tribe, you had to go beyond your immediate family. And so the tools that we use in order for us to be able to expand these circles are these emotional intelligence um, that we have that are available to us. So um, I think what he was saying was that they were intuitively tapped into this. They didn't have the word emotional intelligence. It was as much a part of their daily lives as it is for us today in a more logical sense or more commercial or transactional sense. So it was deeply, um, like he, he said, like it was deeply embedded in their psyche so much so that they didn't know the difference between what was reason and what was emotion. It was connection. Yeah, I think um, if you look like at the spider, the first time it makes a web is apparently exactly the same as the last time it makes a web. And that spiders from 10,000 years ago make webs the same as spiders from then. But humans don't do anything that's almost recognizable to what we were doing 10,000 years ago. Like nothing about my day, maybe go to the toilet or something, <laughs> is, is <laughs> you know, similar. But I'm doing it on a, a nice, you know, 
toilet with you know not squatting in some bush you know with some saber tooth tiger about to pounce on me um and this podcast got went downhill very <laughs> um and so one of the things which is sort of interesting they say that english today has about seven hundred and fifty thousand to a million words and is the fastest or the biggest language and the fastest growing one and that old english i don't know who named it that from a thousand years ago had about seventy five thousand words so we're talking one tenth um and that basically we've been growing. So, you know, now there's more and more people talking, you know, more humans than ever were before. Most of the culture is created in English, the, you know, the academic languages in English, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're able to have all these words and words are tools with which you can build something like a sentence, which you can communicate with somebody. And so I think James is sort of saying that they used to sort of, you know, communicate more implicitly. There's this documentary saying that dogs have 12 words. Infants have three feelings. <laughs> Dogs have twelve words, um, which is like happy, sad, play, scared, you know, go away, etc. Um, so they did this thing, and effectively, um, if you again add more words to your bank, you get more feelings, you get more solutions to problems, you can do things you otherwise weren't able to do. So mm. if you bought a new tool and you're building, I don't know, a house, you can do something you weren't able to do before. If you give yourself more words you're able to build something that you weren't able to build before. It's the building Mm -hmm. blocks. And so communication is the fundamentals of everything. In Mm -hmm. in your head, you're communicating with yourself, right? You you think in words. So the more words you have, the more tools. And when I kind of realized this, I'm like, what? Like, I need to go on like word acquisition. (laughs) Now, this doesn't mean like (laughs) reading the dictionary (laughs) or something. Um, But... Often, I'll, I don't know, I'll listen to a podcast very fast, like five to six times speed. I'm not worried about taking everything in. It, it, these things sort of move around and you get a- exposed to more things. And then it's, it's sort of this pattern reading. You can listen to it at half the speed, but listening to something at half the speed is not trying to get extracted twice as much. You're just exposed to these different things. And so now I try to listen to the broadest amount of stuff and I'm like, new word, cool, what does that mean? How do I use this? It's just beautiful. I love word acquisition. I love words. Yeah, quick um, hot tip for anyone listening. So talking in normal speed is very painful for Duncan. Okay. It's only when we listen back to this recording at his desired three to five X speed does it actually um, lift itself to the cadence that he's more associated with. So if you ever want to have a constructive conversation, just record it in advance, send it to him, and he can listen to it at five X, and he'll be much happier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, like so all of these words and all of these labelings of emotion. Do, we, that do you have the best words, out, James? Sorry. I have the best words. Mm. <laughs> I have the and the worst pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> um I don't have the best words, by the way. I'm I'm an eternal student of the, uh, the the lexicon of the English language. It's a beautiful thing. But um so uh, but to bring it back to the point you were making, these are just tools, right? They are not in of themselves of an inherent value is how you're able to use them. And I think it's um, it's incredibly powerful when you come back to your ability to have self-awareness. And what I mean by that is that at any point in the day, like you're, whenever you're experiencing an event or an emotion, for you to be able to stop in that at that point and look into yourself and think to yourself, what am I feeling right now? What is this emotion that I'm experiencing? And you can actually put a label on it. You can then actually separate yourself from that emotion and observe it much more objectively. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a wonderful quote from somebody who I've forgotten. I've I long since stopped trying to remember who made them. You don't learn from <laughs> your experiences. You learn from reflecting on your experiences. Oh, pain plus perfection equals progress. James, Ray yeah. Dalio. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so... 
this is really interesting. So now, um, basically, I, I try to make sure I have, like, Saturday is Duncan Day, and there's many things, but I, I try not to speed 21, but I try to have, like, a date with myself as an example. And so one of the things I have is this doc called journaling, and I just write down all these little points from the week. It might be that quote, what does that mean? I'll think about it. Or I might, I always try to relive a couple of experiences. So I sort of think, what was the best I felt that week? What was the worst I felt that week? You know, is there something I don't understand? Those are sort of three headings. And then I'll just write, oh, this event. And I'll just like meditate on it. I'll just think about it. And as I sort of try to articulate it, I find that I'm able to understand it wildly better. And then I'm like, oh, is this what I think happened? Oh, is that why I think I reacted this way? And so, yeah, I don't, I found that from reflecting on your experiences, you can learn wild amounts more about them. And mm. then you can learn about yourself and others. And then I also do this to others. What was so-and-so reacting this way for? Now I try to think about it from their context and now I try to go through. And yeah, I realized that, okay, well, I certainly didn't think that was how they thought about it at the time, did I? I thought something else. And then maybe the way I reacted is not how I would like to have reacted if I could have my time again. <laughs> um, so, you know, if I'm not significantly wanting to change some of my responses during the week, then I think I'm not pr properly looking at myself and trying to learn. Mm. No, so I, I think that's very, um, it, you know, it's very important for you to be able to use tools like that. And journaling is a great one. Um, the other one that I wanted to, to, to bring up is, so there's understanding yourself and understanding others. But then there's the power or the compulsion of being understood, Ooh. and I think, and I think this is a, 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 a huge area that has a very large role, especially when in relationships. And this isn't just about like you know um, marriages or loving relationships. This is in, it can be in any kind of relationship, hating relationships, hating <laughs> um, or friendships or families or all those different kinds of areas. Mm. Um, but what we um, invest in ourselves and in each other in actually putting in the effort to understand each other. And what I mean by that is that it's supremely hard, especially when emotions are involved. Mm. I'll try to give a, a, a short example. But um, take, for example, when you're in a very highly emotionally charged relationship, like uh, a romantic one, whenever the sense of negative feeling comes up, the other person can by default, because we all have healthy things called egos, get very defensive and argumentative. And the purpose of the initial person sharing those emotions wasn't to attack them, but in actual fact to be understood. And so we're losing a lot, we, we can lose a lot when a negative emotion is expressed in one party and is not received or understood from the other. This is, I really like that, being understood. So um, I spent, like, I don't know, before 25, zero time trying to proactively understand myself. I mm. kind of was just like, of course you understand yourself. You're yourself. How could you understand yourself? Like, it's just <laughs> right? Like, and now I'm like, like, I don't know if there's a more immature, emotionally immature thing to say. And I was not trying to understand others. <laughs> um, and now there's so much beauty in it trying to understand and then to talk to people. And so like, I remember like talking to my mom. I was like, hey, mom, is this why you do this? I wanted to talk about it. It's a bit private. And she's like, exactly. And then she's like, I don't think I'd ever thought about it that way. But now you've said it. Like, that's exactly it. And so trying to understand yourself or trying to understand others and then talking about yourself with others and about others with themselves is one of the best friggin' relationship activities ever. It used to be like, I don't know, James and I would play video games growing up or we'd go and like, I don't know, swimming at the, you know, whatever. But... Now I'm like, hey, dude, do you want to try and talk about each other and how our responses to this? And like, 
sweet. <laughs> and, and maybe this is counseling. So one of the sort of, I have eight relationship activities and one of them is what I call counseling chats, which is effectively mm. talking about instead of your logical response, like what emotionally went down here? You don't not avoid the logic stuff, but you come at it from an emotion first point of view. Yeah, no, completely. So uh, there's, a, there's a really, there's an amazing tool that I've learned in, um, recently mm-hmm. that speaks directly to this um, this exercise of trying to understand each other from an emotional standpoint. Um, so this this was written by um, Harville Hendricks, who wrote the book uh, Getting the Love You Want, a seminal read, highly recommended for anyone that's in a relationship. Um, so that should hopefully just be about most people. But what the, it's what they call um, the Imago Dialogue. And the way that works is that if there is one person who is having um, you know, a need for expressing themselves emotionally, the other person is, uh, is with them and they go through three stages. The first is to simply mirror the other person. So whatever it is that that person is expressing by way of their emotions, you simply mirror it back to them. So, you, so that they can see that you are taking on board what it is that they're saying. The second step is validating. And so by validating, you're removing any preconceived notion of judgment, um, ridicule, or um, you know, negative association with having shared that emotion. And then the last one is empathy, to be able to show that you can relate to how that person is experiencing that particular emotion. And by going through that process, you won't have done anything like a, um, I don't know, a normal uh, individual who would probably feel a lot more defensive and possibly even argumentative in those particular instances where they would actually try and just focus on how they're feeling or how their position is justified rather than just allowing this other person the space and the freedom to freely express themselves. It's an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah, I think... So, you know, life is about communication when you boil it back to it. Either you're talking to yourself or you're talking to others or you're talking to, you know, through your dog, you know, your dog. But like, I don't know if you're, if you're building a house, you're talking through, you know, the wood and all the things or your company. So communication, like everything is ultimately a product of human capital, the food you eat, the chair you're sitting on. And for that to have occurred, there needs to be communication of some kind, the instruction mm-hmm. step. And so the better you get at communicating, the better you get at everything. And thinking about trying to communicate with others from a really raw emotional perspective and not to judge um, and to sort of have this is is so beautiful. Um, mm. And so um, from the 12 steps from AA, um, and I haven't been through this, <laughs> um, but I, I think step 11 <laughs> is um, you need to apologize for the wrongs that you've done, but you can't do anything else to apologize. So for instance, let's say you cheated on someone and they cheated on you too. You have to apologize and say, well, I'm sorry for cheating you. Not, yeah, and you cheated on me too. So, you know, you're also a piece of poop, you know. Um, and I think that <laughs> the catharsis of being able to say and not worry about the hurts that others have done or being able to try to just understand and being in the presence, like, um, I don't know, being around someone who is crying about something that's happened in their life and feeling that sort of sadness, but also trying to have that support and that warmth like that mm. is one of the best experiences possible. And if you told 20-year-old Duncan, like, hey, this sounds like a great idea. I'm like, you must be out of your mind. Like, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, so uh, Dr. Keltner said, the brain is, wi- uh, is wired to feel good, to do good. 
Mm-hmm. So what he um, what he means by that is that we, um, you know, the same part of the brain that releases oxytocin when we eat food, get a massage, also fires when you feel love, compassion, cooperation, and when you're giving to others. Um, and so while the anthropological uh, assumption is because this is how we learn to evolve through cooperating with others, um, it still really is quite, um, like it still is a mystery as to why it is that we, um, evolved in this particular way in the example that you just gave I think that when you when you can be there for someone when you are actually present and able to be that support for someone who is struggling or going through a crisis or is grieving um, it actually it, it's not like um, you know selfishly good but it, it does give you this sense that you are um, you know you feel good in yourself that you are there for that person in that time of need yeah so I don't know, 25 if someone came to me not feeling so great, I'd try to solve the problem. Mm. Whereas mm-hmm. now I've realized part of the solving of the problem is allowing them to feel the emotions in a safe space and okay. to start to process and understand them. And that at the end of this, we don't have to have a solution with a nice bow on the top. And so I don't know, I'd only really approach things from a logic perspective, not an emotional perspective. And I approach them from a must solve the problem as opposed to let's start the processing. And this is not mm-hmm. going to be a solve today. And so I felt like a failure if I hadn't been able to give them a solution. You know, I, I want to help. Yeah. You're my friend. And now I'm like, well, the way I can help is that we're going to talk about this from an emotional perspective, not a logical perspective. And the way I can help is that we're going to start the dialogue. We're going to start the processing. We're not going to have a solution. And so I feel like an ignoramus for sort of not realizing that. But again, mm. this is like... like I don't want to do that all day, every day, but I sure as hell don't want to do it never. And when you get the opportunity to do that with someone, it's so beautiful. It's disgustingly beautiful. Yeah. And also, hopefully, you will be able to lean on others to do that too. Yeah. So there, there, there is this fantastic um, curriculum that you can take that will imp- improve your ability in this area dramatically, and it's called parenting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because... <laughs> When you are suddenly left in the responsible care of a three or four year old child whose prefrontal cortex, while is now developed to a point where they can, um, you know, can reason and logically apply reason, their emotional uh, side or their limbic system is still far more instinctively more powerful than they are able to control. Just think on yourself. Some like whenever you get really angry, you think to you, and then you calm down, you think to yourself, God, what happened? I lost control. Well for a to- uh, for a toddler or for a young um, child, that's far more pervasive because their ability to get emotional override is far more pervasive. And so that's why a lot of people um, may cringe when you know you're at a shopping center and a and a parent said to their child like, "Oh, we're not going to get cookies today," and they just throw the box <laughs> in the pan and they just go full bore tantrum. Um, they're actually having a genuine emotional response. Um, God damn right, they are. Let parents put away. So I, I guess I should qualify like so. so this is based on what I've learned around um, how the human brain forms. So like I can't say this is the case for every time. They might actually be you know spoiled or gaming their parents. But um, in 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 the general occasion, um, when the child is having a heightened response to something that we as adults would think like this is 
completely trivial what is going on here. Like um, sometimes like it could be just that, oh, um, you know, I used this spoon instead of this spoon and that just, they're, they're gone. Um, that is actually an emotional response. They're actually having a genuine emotional response to that event. And so for you as a parent to completely disregard your reasonable reaction, which is just to, to suggest that this is unreasonable how they're acting, and allow that child to have that emotion is an incredibly, uh, incredibly difficult at first. And it, um, but it's something that you must always be mindful of um, going forward. Cool. Um, I think one of the things sort of paralleling a little bit from that is I don't, I was specifically trying not to feel bad emotions. And also I think being emotional or whatever was not something that 25 year old Duncan was trying to be. He's trying to be stoic and in charge of his emotions and all that jazz. Right. Mm, um, yep. And then I basically was trying to ignore any emotions. My body was telling me like a signal like you are feeling this. And I was like, well, that's great. You could be quiet. You know, I'm going to be this way. Um, and so I was specifically trying not to listen to my body. And then I decided, well, 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 well this is ridiculous. Um, you, there are lessons to be learned here. There are ways to sort of move forward. And then I started to try to l listen to my body. And I realized that each time I try to listen and I learn another way to, to hear something, I realized that there's another, you know, 1.1 things to, to learn and listen about. So the more I've listened, the more I've learned that I can listen. It kind of only ever gets a door that opens wider. And mm. part of this was kind of like, I thought I was all good. And I'm not saying I wasn't. Like, I, I didn't and I burn out or, like, you know, lose my job or something. Um, but in, there was this period of, like, I'm all good. And then I start to listen. And then I'm like, whoa, whoa, that, I, I didn't feel that. And, and then you kind of think, oh, my God, maybe I'm not as good as I kind of was. And so there's this sort of weird sort of mm. change from, like, I don't feel anything to, whoa, I'm feeling stuff. Whoa, I, I think I might actually be worse than I was when I didn't feel stuff to mm, being able to mm. actually feel things and then to be able to use them as signals and to know I've got to slow down here or to know that I've got to go and speak to someone about this, like James, and to, you know, sort of, hey, dude, I'm, I'm feeling this. Can we talk through, talk it through? So there was this yep. weird, like, I think I was all good. Then I started trying to listen to my emotions and then I think I was less good. I, I had less emotional regulation when I started trying to listen to them and mm. I was being thrown around by them. And now I'm sort of, I think, hopefully able to listen but not able to be pushed around as much but in a good way, like it's it's a productive listening as opposed to productive ignoring. Hundred percent. So, like one thing I can remember back on uh, at certain stages through, let's say, adolescence, um, it wasn't so much this cultivated notion of having feelings was a weakness. But I do know um, from um, you know the feelings I had at the time was this sense of so back then, um, you know, to have discipline was something that was um, I guess, uh, championed, you know, the discipline of, you know, being able to study or to exercise or to look after your health or to focus on a particular goal and achieving that goal. Um, I always saw as having extreme emotion, whether they were happy or sad, as a lack of discipline because that was beyond my control. Mm. And, and so I would actively try to, um, you know, in a way, looking back on it, suppress those emotions because I saw them as being out of control. Um, and so that was actually something that, um, you know, kind of muted my responses to, you know, really, really um, good events or really, really challenging events. And that, um, like, leading on from that, being able to express oneself in an emotional way. Mm. And I think it's not so much, like, 
the the power of emotions is actually in that ability for you to allow them to have that semblance of lack of loss of control and I'll, I'll try I'll try and do a better job of explaining that um, so we have rational we have the rational brain but we also have the emotional brain those emotions are in a, in a way speaking from a certain point of truth and for us to be able to embrace that truth offers some form of wisdom or another and so by listening to it by observing it by allowing it to wash through your body and um, you know sitting within it there's going to be something in there that you can tap into and learn from mm. um, <clears throat> so in some respects you could say your life is a series of experiences <clears throat> and all else equal if you experience more you live more and so you could say well, there's logical experiencing and emotional experiencing sort of something and so if you can cultivate your ability to logically understand something, so for instance, one person reads a book and another person reads it and they see all these things the other wouldn't have seen. Or one person reads a book and they understand emotionally all these things the other person hasn't seen. So for me, if you can cultivate your ability to logically understand and to emotionally understand, you increase your ability to experience. And so the same unit of time, like one hour with someone or one hour with a book or one hour of work, um, is actually far more experience. And so this to me is like adding color to life. It's, it's, it's like you've just gone from this black and white sort of thing, you know, with, with like mono sound, you know, to like full HD. And so the same thing in the past, just like the Eskimos, you know, you know, I look and I see ice and they look and they see all these things and they can understand it. Or, you know, whether it's food, you know, the more you can sit, you know, understand the different tastes and things, or whether it's a book, everything from looking to tasting to the intellectual, purely intellectual things, I've found mm. you can massively increase your ability to experience them. Yeah. And that's making life, like literally, you're not needing to spend more money. It costs the same, <laughs> you know, it, but it's, it's wildly better. Yeah, yeah. So living your life without a healthy uh, spectrum of emotions, I think, to your point, Duncan, is like depriving yourself of a very big part of life and how 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 one can experience it. Mm. You know, it's like Plato's cave. If, <laughs> you're, um, if you're sitting at the back of the wall watching the shadows across the... That's literally um, what most of my first 20 years of life was like in hindsight. Mm, mm. Mm. And, and, and it's, it's, it's incredible looking back on like how that has um, evolved over time, I think. Mm. But by leaning into the emotional side, and and um, you know, my my wife as a life partner is a supremely supremely good teacher for me in this space because um, you know through being with her, who's someone who is very much in tune with her emotional side, um, she's showing me what this can look like. Um, you know, living uh, in this space on a daily basis is um, it's an incredible gift. So like yeah, like coming out from from the cave and coming into the world and understanding <laughs> that you know it's not just what we see um, you know from a, lad, a rational logic perspective but it's the emotional side and I think it's part of what makes us human as well you know? mm. like if, the, if, if all of the um, if our robot overlords take it take over tomorrow um, there, there will be something that separates us from them and that will be this an emotional this canvas of emotional um, uh, yeah, spectrum. All right, summary time. <clears throat> so 20-year-old Duncan thought that 35-year-olds didn't have fun. 
Well, I now believe that 20-year-old Duncan didn't know how to have fun. He had a very poor ability to logically understand the world and almost no ability to emotionally engage in the world. I believe that I have wild amounts more fun than I had as a 20-year-old, but it was totally inconceivable to 20-year-old Duncan that there was fun like I'm having now. So I don't particularly want to be 20 forever, (laughs) and I think every year of your life could be the best year of your life. And one of the key reasons for this is that I believe I'm able to improve my ability to logically engage with the world and improve my ability to emotionally engage with the world and myself. And therefore, my ability to experience the world increases. And so things which before were not able to be accessed become able to be accessed. So life is only becoming more beautiful. So lean into developing your emotions. That, that was beautiful, Duncan. Getting me, emo- getting me emotional. <laughs> so um, I believe like, like, like most things emotions are learnable and what i mean by that is that you don't learn how to be happy or sad those are um for bet for want of a better way of describing built into you but you can learn how to tap into your emotions and understand what it is um, what the truth behind those feelings are um there was a very um there was a very compelling video uh, that duncan shared with me about what is depression um and the difference between depression and sadness mm. and um what Alain did Alan de, de Botton, oh my God. <laughs> um, I would explain that the difference between depression and sadness is not knowing what you are sad about. And so that can kind of lend itself to why it's important for us to have an ongoing dialogue, not only with our own emotions, but understanding those of um, the ones of those around us as well. Because to know your emotions, I believe, helps how you can know yourself a lot better and how you can know others around you and how you can help each other um, because if what they say is right and that we are um, if we are programmed um, to feel good when we do good then tapping into our emotional um, uh, repertoire is one of the best ways to do that wonderful all right well we're over an hour and i gotta run thanks james see you, Duncan. See you soon bye Bye.